0: Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will be discussing labor unions and recent developments in the labor movement. I'm thrilled to have a very special guest on the program who is extremely knowledgeable on the topic. But first, the origins of labor unions date back to the 18th century industrial revolution in Europe. Many of the early labor leaders were Irish During this time, there was a huge surge of new workers into the workplace who needed representation. Working conditions were just horrific. I mean, the factories were crowded. There was severe exploitation, obviously child labor, unsafe conditions. There were periods with no clean drinking water. And during the 1700s, trade unions were forced underground due to just a severe crackdown by the state and corporations were working together. They didn't want any kind of labor unions. In the United States, organized labor sprung up in the 1860s with the first unions focusing on getting an eight-hour workday. In 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt established the National Labor Board, NLRB, But at that time, it lacked any real power. So in 1935, Senator Robert Wagner, a Democrat from New York, introduced the National Labor Relations Act that President Roosevelt signed into law. The act created a new independent agency, the National Labor Relations Board, and this was considered a seminal event in labor history. Here is Senator Wagner speaking in 1933. The National Labor Relations Act is now law of the land, we shall see the dawn of a new era of peace and justice for all in our economic life. There has been a lot of progress and severe setbacks for labor throughout history, you know, one step forward, three or four steps backward. It has been a long and often rough journey with intense pushback from corporations and those in political power. And this long and windy road has led us to today. There is currently a lot of buzz in the United States regarding labor unions. According to Gallup, uh, 67% of people in the United States support unions today compared to just 48% in 2009. Support has not quite returned to the all-time high of 75% in the 1950s when union membership peaked at about 35%. Today, union membership is only about 8%. So support is going up, but membership remains low. And we'll be talking about all of this with my guest today. I am thrilled to have as a special guest today, Dr. Mindy Chen. Dr. Chen is the director of the Dolores Huerta Labor Institute. I'll just mention here that Huerta co-founded the United Farm Workers with Cesar Chavez and has been a tireless labor leader. She coined the term, si se puede, yes we can, which she made the slogan, a rallying cry for the farm workers campaign. If that sounds familiar, it because it was President Obama's campaign slogan, he, by the way, gave her a presidential medal of freedom. Dr. Chen is an associate professor of labor studies at the Los Angeles Community College District. It is the second largest community college system in the U.S., enrolling over 205,000 students across nine campuses. Wow. Dr. Chen's research and teaching focuses on all aspects of organized labor. She earned a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology from Harvard, a Master's Degree in Psychological Services from University of Pennsylvania, and a PhD in Social Welfare from UCLA. Dr. Chen was a researcher at the UCLA Center for Civil Society and has been a lead union organizer in Southern California and in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I cannot think of anyone better to discuss labor issues with today. Welcome to Politics consider Dr. Chen.
1: Um, yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Okay, so before we get into what is happening right now in the U.S., can you just give us a brief history of the, the labor movement? And also, please let me know if I got anything wrong at the top.
1: <laughs> sure, no problem. No, thank you so much. That, that all works. Yeah, so... Um, I guess like before we get started i uh, I'll just also say that I'm not a historian by discipline so um I you know I feel like American labor history is probably folks can look it up um, in greater detail of that is your interest but in general I think like it's, as far as like the brief amount of history we need to know to get us here is pretty much that the story of America has been about the story of working people from the foundation right in terms of like our settlement and immigration and voluntary and forced move of people has always been about the story of work, struggles of you know what counts as dignified work. Uh, we even think about the American Civil War and emancipation of, of slaves. It's very much about also you know, it's not okay to make people work for free. So um, in terms of the American labor movement, we think about like, you know, ways of ways of folks working is that in around the 19th century, I mean, we know that like, you know, even pre-before that, you know, in, in European history, folks have time and time again stood up against unjust conditions through collective action. So again, more or less folks either walk off their job through a, what's, a, what's a strike, right? Basically withholding labor or other forms of concerted action. And again, um, up to the 19th century, basically the laws were very sort of, unfriendly in terms of workers. Basically, I think a lot of time when workers get together to say, let's not do this, this is bad. Um, they could be um, sort of like accused of um, conspiracy. Um, so, Up to this point, I think, you know, like uh, there were the knights of labor, there are various forms of union and sort of unofficial and official unions of workers trying to, again, either strike or take action. It's been a great struggle in terms of their capability of being more involved.
0: Indeed. And what I had said at the top is, you know, a lot of them were forced underground. Uh, When I read about the history, a lot of it was just brutal um, backlash and where corporations where they would have the law enforcement lock these people up. So I think it's a lot more severe than a lot of people realize, at least the reaction by corporations and politicians historically to people who try to stand up for themselves.
1: Correct. Definitely. Yeah. And I teach labor studies and a lot of times I have students who are immigrants from all over the place and they would tell me, Um, You know, back in um, where I came from, folks would get locked up or murdered for um, trying to do something and speaking about unjust uh, conditions. And that definitely happened here in the US. So I guess we can fast forward to maybe like, you know, I think a lot of this action kind of like, you know, we can think about ways of ways of Um, of organizing, of um, the Knights of Labor, there were like railroad brotherhoods and folks, again, more or less trying to take action. Um, And like you said, uh, it's been challenging. Um, All that didn't kind of solidify until maybe like around the turn of the century with increasing again, more like more waves of coal miner strikes, railroad worker strikes and um, the industrial workers of the world. But also coinciding with that, you know, we know that a couple key events took place, which was World War I and World War II. Uh, So I At some point, I think the American government had an interest in terms of making sure that labor is on the same page as of the state interest and sort of like collective efforts and sort of like mobilization for war. Um, and this was also during a the time that there was a lot of anti-communist scares. So oh, I think
0: yeah, McCarthyism, yeah.
1: <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So I think at some point, um, you know, realizing that perhaps, you know, workers could take very radical action. Um, I think some of the New Deal coalition work came into place in terms of like, let's not go super radical, but actually, you know what, well, maybe we should actually have a more progressive policy in terms of looking and allowing workers to organize. In the context of Great Depression, FDR, you know, after he took office in the interest of recovery to, uh, to post Great Depression in the, in, um, and also in the interest of making sure that everybody's growing in the same direction, the National Labor Relations Act was uh, passed. So this basically allowed American workers to organize and, uh, and that there are certain levels of activity that are protected for workers. So it wasn't until 19... Um, the 1930s, after the National Labor Relations Act did, the American unions really kind of have like a really formalized uh, structure in terms of that, you know, and and laws protecting them in terms of that you're free to form a labor union, Uh, you will, you know, you will not suffer repercussion or retaliation for exercising your free speech and your desire to form unions. So of course, that being said, we also know that uh, what's law and what actually happens at the workplace might be very different. But
0: Yes, yeah. Oh. I mean, to that point, Franklin President Franklin Delano Roosevelt it seems to me was the first president to really help the labor movement. But initially, some of those laws didn't have teeth, and there was a lot of back and forth. You know, different senators from different states had different approaches. So, yeah, I mean, I I appreciate that context.
1: Sure, right, no problem. Yeah. So um, let me see. Like, I think we're like in the '30s. Um, I guess like super fast forward to. Um, Right after that, we know that we uh, jumped into World War II and with, um, you know, so many GIs work um abroad and uh, our work, for, you know, one thing that um our country pr- pride ourselves in context where like, right, with fascism, with other countries, uh, is that we continue to, like, ramp up our wartime production. And I don't know if you have seen um one of the fl- posters from World War II was, like, actually this, um I, I show my own students, it's um very proud uh, worker and with a star-spangled banner flying in the back saying, American workers are free and workers shall be free. And this is like a big union poster too. And that's sort of like, look, we have, you know, in in juxtaposition to the Nazis, our workers here have good wages. They have dignity. um, They're unionized. They work. And um,
0: right. And when the and, and when the, when the men went to war, women were then working and then there was the Rosie, the Riveter. Definitely. Post-
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is like, you know, we, we need workers to continue to be very productive. So this was a time where um, the government and workers, you know, want to be like, again, sort of rolling in the same direction that we're. We're proud, we're good workers, we're happy work, we're productive, and people make good living. And women can work in heavy industries as well.
0: And Dr. So- Chen, I, I think, don't you think it's important? I mean, I think that women, and I mentioned Dolores Huerta, I think women are often forgotten in terms of really working hard and behind the scenes and both as organizers in the labor mu- movement. Would you agree with that?
1: I definitely agree with that. And I think um, the, the history of women's work has also been that, you know, prior to this, women have always done work. And a lot of the work is domestic work and unpaid work. Historically, women have done all this work for free. Um, I, I have two children, so I also know how much childcare costs. And oh, this is yeah. like sort of costs that have been absorbed by women workers historically. But definitely up to World War II, um, you know, we also saw the important contribution of our women working um again, right? Building our tanks and warplanes and, and, war and um, our ability to continue production, um, uh, even when the men are at work. So I think it speaks about how important it is and how much more productive our country is, because women are encouraged to um to work, you know, sort of um, and I think. Um, With the Los desk contribution, I think it also continues to be a conversation where uh, women are an important part of our workforce, yet they don't necessarily get the credit. And we definitely continue to have issues of, um, you know, lack of equal pay and other sort of disparity at the workplace. Uh, So, but thank you for bringing that. So I think women have always worked and they've also partaken um, sort of important leadership roles in many of the union movements, actually.
0: Right. And I'm glad to see them starting to get some recognition now.
1: Definitely. Um, yeah. And, and I think and we wanted to say that while Cesar Chavez may have gotten a lot in the limelight, right, in terms of getting the media attention, Durela Shorten is instrumental in the organization genius there, um, right, in terms of, um, you know, making phone calls, making sure that like clergy, students, nonprofits, and um, being able to orchestrate this international boycott that really um, was the brilliance and the strategy behind what um, enabled them to
0: succeed a tireless organizer definitely
1: right I tell my students too like while what we see on the media in terms of strikes and action might be you know one or two guys speaking to the camera um behind the scene you know it's always about you know making sure you had the budget to survive the strike making sure you have like volunteers coordinating folks who need to be aware um lots and lots of note-taking
0: spreadsheets Um, crisis manager.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So Um, I I mentioned that union membership is still low despite strong support. Right. Um, Can you tell us about these dynamics and trends and this sort of up and down of union membership?
1: Sure. Definitely. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I think I think I stopped at like sort of post-World War II um, industrial action. So basically the story generally up to that point is that um you know at some point the afl and the cio became umbrella organizations they merged in the u.s union membership took off um, in, in, their, in the era of prosperity after world war ii so this is where um you know um i think we get like these sort of imageries and pictures of you know like our grandpas go to the factory they they take their lunch box and they can feed their entire families on their union jobs and union wages the stories of like higher union density and membership and folks, no matter where they are in the political spectrum, more or less understood unions as necessary and important as a way to for work for ordinary workers to advocate for their uh, for their day to day for like wages, uh, insurance, um, benefits and so on. That kind of started to experience a decline um, from the 70s and 80s. And there, I would say, more or less, probably, you know, two or three um, things that happened. One, the first one is, you know, I think this was an era of a lot of deregulation.
0: Um, The era of Reagan, right? And deregulation. and
1: Definitely. Right, so an era Reagan and deregulation, um, and this is where like corporate the American corporation also never looked the same before. Right, so um, again, sort of before that, you know, we think about the typical workplace as a factory or a place, a shop, right? You know, you have like a- a- one place where everybody worked together or more they like see each other. But now we start to see conglomerates and international corporations, um, and of course, part of that deregulation allowed corporations to be ever larger than before to be become um, you know multinational and also in all of this is also a sort of uh, a newer importance of the finance-based economy and shareholder demand for profits and in that race um, is that you know corporations start to like really compete with each other and they start to look at how they can maximize profit and um, lower their overheads and one of their first thing to do is to cut the cost of labor a big effort to de-unionize took place from that point on. Um, and I think this is done through both um, at the workplace where managers actively discourage unionization um, mm-hmm. as well as a much a larger political agenda to uh, change state laws to make it a lot easier for folks to um, to deunionize or opt out of unions. And I know that in many states where um you have right to work laws, workers can opt out of union, you know, so union membership, while the while labor law still. um dictates that the union needs to cover their, um, you know, to to cover, to to protect their, um, you know, union membership. Uh, So basically um, I tell my students that's more like, and the analogy would be like going to a potluck without having to bring food. So Mm -hmm. the right to work law uh, basically says, you know, the union contract will cover you uh, when the union bargains and wins a race, it covers you, but you don't have to pay dues. Right. That's a big issue. It's a big issue. So what that did is based um, over time, it really weakened the power of unions. And again, think about the picnic, uh, right? The the potluck where you don't have to bring a plate. Um, Folks look at each other say like, hey, you know, I got to eat for free. You don't have to bring anything either. And it has... You know, it's sort of like the um, cascading effect where more and more folks start to opt out of paying union dues. The
0: free free rider problem, basically, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So um, then eventually you have a union without the financial resources to really bargain for a powerful contract. Um, And then down the line, folks start to wonder, why do we even have a union at all? If our union contract is not good, our union doesn't have the resources to do anything let's just vote out the union. So we see um, that they're there de-unionizing efforts that kind of like come down this way.
0: Right to work sounds good, right? But it's basically sort of anti-union legislation. And there's things like um, maybe make it harder, like maybe unions can't charge dues, to, you know, they make it harder in terms of the payroll, things like that. You know, I think some states now, like Michigan, are trying to make it uh, pro-labor. Politicians are winning in some places, and they're trying to make it so that if a union obtains some benefits, only the union members get that, which seems fair to me. I mean, I used to belong to a union, and when we got something, I didn't like the fact that the free riders could get the same benefits. So that's what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, definitely. And as a political scientist, I think you d- definitely talk about the free rider problem all the time. <laughs> um, okay, so so definitely, um, you know, I think the sort of the deregulation and the corporate, um, sort of like a, um, and then again this like political agenda to, uh, to bring about these so called right to work laws had an effect of like really weakening unions everywhere. We also know that um, globalization, you know, happened back to the deregulation. It's also a lot easier for corporations to have an international presence to be headquartered in the U.S. but have a factory in Mexico or Vietnam or wherever. You know, another thing that happened is that some of those union jobs simply disappeared because factories moved out. So um, in terms of NAFTA
0: was a big part of that under President Clinton.
1: I would say so, definitely. NAFTA facilitated that. Um, So, you know, I was, I think, you know, sort of 70s on to the 90s, or actually even 2000s, I think with, you know, and and I would say this is, you know, from politicians from both ends of the spectrum as well, right? I think in terms of deregulation, new corporate structures, outsourcing, um, you know, again, the union jobs left, and they're just gone. And when the union factories leave and close down, you know, those union memberships are are gone. So when we look at places like the Midwest and the Rust Belt, these are definitely places that were formerly, you know, very heavily unionized, but have um, since become, you know, have low union density
0: since. And a lot of them are hollowed out, you know, it's very <laughs> sad to see. And I guess, to your point, just to note that multinational corporations give to both political parties. <laughs>
1: Definitely. And, um, and I also tell my students too. I think I, uh, you know, I caution them to think that corporations are evil. And I would say like, no, corporations are not evil, but they're not good either. They're just beings right there. You know, corporations have, um, especially ones with shareholders, have one singular mission of maximizing profits to pay out right. shareholders. So I think that's something to keep in mind. That you know, in light of that, right? They have to they have the responsibility to pay out as much profit as possible. This is also why unions also are a very important safeguard. Is that when you don't have the ability to advocate for yourself to be at the table, you know, labor is you're on a chopping board in terms of how do you maximize profits for shareholders? Um, let's cut labor costs. So right. unless you and have it, a union yeah. in place you know, you're yeah, not safe.
0: Yeah, and in places like Germany, unions have a lot more. They're at the table. The government allows them at the table with the same level as corporations. But here it's very uneven. Here, are these CEOs and other people say, we have a fiduciary responsibility. Our number one priority is profit. And, you know, it's sad because sometimes that is at the expense of ethics and workers' rights. And so to your point, if that's going to happen, right, if they're only going to look at the bottom line, and again, it's, they're not evil necessarily, they're going to just look at the bottom line. Then mean, you have to have a counterbalance to respect workers. And I think we're on the same page for there, right?
1: Exactly. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, given that, I feel like, you know, sort of, I guess, like, as we're still talking about history, and in the context of today, you know, all, I think all that... Started to change in the late '90s and 2000, and the center of union activities shifted. The nature of the workplace changed, right? And we talk about like those union jobs left the Midwest. Simultaneously, we're looking at California, where um there has been demographic changes. Um, actually, for forever, um California has been a place of with lots of waves of immigrants from everywhere. And actually, interestingly, up to the '80s, California was considered like a very anti-union setting. Interesting. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, part of it is um, I think we are, um, you know, sort of like the Wild West. Um, And, you know, in sort of the the settlement, especially in Southern California, has been like, you know, a lot of wealthy ranch owners. And we, you know, back to talk about Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, we have the Central Valley, which is uh, the breadbasket of America. Yet we also have workers working in really, really challenging conditions under the heat, under pesticides. And many of those workers are immigrant workers or um, during Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta's era. Um, contracted workers under various programs where workers from Mexico would come to the U.S. Um, and work in sort of pretty deplorable conditions. And then once they're done picking grapes and onions and different fruits, they go back to Mexico. So, if, and mm-hmm. by the way, those programs, one of the, which is called the Braceros, was actually a U.S. governmental program encouraged by U.S. employers, right? So mm-hmm. back to, again, sort of corporations, um, right? In this, in this case, powerful growers, um, you know, actually, one of the conditions where they can pay their workers very low wages to maximize their profits, and it was in those contexts where, um, you know, and during that time, many unions were, you know, organizing in auto for auto workers and factories on the East Coast. They they saw California as this is undoable. You know, immigrant workers are um, so vulnerable. Many of them don't have the same rights as citizens. There's no <clears> way we're going to organize them.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you about some specifics in California in a minute. But first, I just want to talk about what's happening now all around the United States. And, you know, there's a lot of buzz and it's a lot of people are talking about it. And so part of the recent increased support for unions relates to all of this activity. So can you just provide a brief update on the very strikes? I know there are a lot of them, so maybe just um, the big ones and where they stand right now.
1: Sure. I mean, I guess like you know, as of today, we can we know that United Auto Workers are on strike and they have expanded to turn the strike. Think uh, looking locally here in California is that you know um our writers settled, um, and I think that's also on folks' radar because everybody's waiting for their favorite show to return, <laughs> um, and and the writer and the screen actors uh, are still on the picket line and striking. I think it's interesting to look at the Hollywood industries because uh, this, in Cal- I mean, I think in California and also elsewhere, it's a pretty high-profile industry. They definitely know that how to leverage their fame and their importance. By leveraging that, they also created a lot of awareness and support, um, and educating the public about the importance of of working and and you know setting terms to one's working conditions. And we also, I think, expanded folks' understanding about what it means to be a union worker. And we're not, not thinking about the um, def- poor factory worker in deplorable conditions. We're talking mm-hmm. about how does a writer guarantee their creative independence in the era of AI? How does one who is trained to do what they do continue to have a say in the dignity of their work and, and the pride of their own work? I think that's creating a lot of like sort of reflection and reverberation all around the country. All this started post-COVID, and I feel like this is also a larger trend of folks having a lot of reckoning about what does it mean to work? Uh, is a worth-
0: You know, the essential workers are like, people are staying home, we're having to bust our ass, and we're not getting proper compensation, and then people started becoming aware of it. One thing I just want to mention is one thing that I think is really interesting that people are seeing you know, there's this idea of glamour that all actors are like Jennifer Aniston or whatever. And I think when the, when you saw those picket lines, people said, Look, I'm an actor and I'm living month to month. You know, some people living out of their car. And I think people don't realize that most people in Hollywood are not wealthy, right? Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. definitely. And Hollywood's particularly interesting because it's a huge freelance industry. And I think in some way it reflects um I, you know, earlier we talked about the change of the factory to the corporation and now increasingly everybody is a freelancer.
0: Yeah, no then, benefits. Right, with
1: no benefits, right? Your your work is kind of condi- kind of connected to whether you get a gig or not, right? Do you get to work on this show or not? Are you going to be on the set of the next movie, right? Um, are you driving for Uber? Do you have a contract for, you know, doing this or that? Um, I, I think the future or sort of now and the future of work is increasingly work has become more insecure, right? The days of, you know, Grandpa goes to the factory, and next thing you know, he works for forty years. with so a pension is gone. Folks are working, going from gig to gig, from job to job. So yes, yeah, so I think exactly like you said. Even though we think about the big time A-list actors, we also know that many workers, uh, many actors and writers go from show to show, um, and many of them are basically out of work in between, you know, production season in between shows.
0: Now the, the writers' strike was resolved, and can you just I don't. You probably. I don't know if you know the specifics, but was it resolved favorable? Was it a compromise? Did people feel like they were screwed, or how did that end? In your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think my sense is that it was a compromise. You know, I would say probably like a win-win for both sides, or a win for the writers. I am not privy to their internal, um, you know, to know that where their bottom lines are, but I can I can say that. You know, having haven't been an organizer myself. Usually um, you don't come out of a strike. You don't settle unless your bottom line issues are met. And I know some of their bottom line issues have to do with benefits, having important language to regulate AI, job preservation for writers.
0: Okay. And that takes me to SAG-AFTRA, which I don't know exactly the acronym, but this is the Screen Writers, right? They're
1: screen Actors Guild.
0: Screen Actors Guild. Okay. And what, yeah. is, the, what is the difference between... Screen Actors Guild and writers, is there any overlap or are they totally uh, separate?
1: They don't. So Hollywood is interesting because Hollywood actually have all these, There's they're the craft unions of Hollywood. Um, so the directors have their own guild, the writers have their own guild. I think the editors have their own and the actors. So we think about actually, you know, even when you and I watch a movie, um, we we think we see the actors, but behind the scene, um, you know, actually, I just I recently read that Arnold Schwarzenegger credited the writers for making him famous, because mm-hmm. even though we know that he says, I'll be back and we know Arnold's famous for that. Um, he was like, the writers wrote that line.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because people like uh, Bill Maher and Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Bill Maher, all of that is written by somebody else. And he right. gets of the money. And uh, some people, you know, I think uh, Stephen Colbert has really credited and appreciated his writers, but they're just reading stuff that other people write. Sure.
1: Yeah, and actually um, not long ago, I met an editor and I think in an era of like, again more more like awesome digital editing, um, this editor was talk- talking about how like, um, she had an actress who won an Emmy um, and she said this line, but she was like, I was the editor who behind the scene, you know, ha- like she had like 10 takes and I matched her line to that, to, to the take, you know, like so I, I edited it and made it look great. And then so when she's receiving the Emmy saying for best performance, I was the one who actually matched her lips to her line and make her look good so i you know never thought about that i was like wow you know behind the scene of what we see as actors are also folks who do the hair and makeup uh the folks who do the lighting the editors who um again sort of can create these flawless scenes, you know, and more digital editing nowadays, and uh, just this huge production, right? And so I don't, I don't even think about uh, the folks who had to feed them, the truck drivers who bring the sets to remote, you know, locations and set up everything, and grips and sound technicians. So Hollywood has so many um, workers, um, but we also don't think about it when we just see the actors, right?
0: And I, I think that a lot of this awareness is happening. Happening now because of these strikes and people are starting to wait a minute you know there's all this behind the scenes it's just like the nightly news you know the anchors up there but before the anchor goes on at six thirty or whatever all of these people are working behind the scenes to really do all the hard work so i so i want to talk about the screen actors um they seem to be it's somewhat of an impasse i just want to play a clip from their president friend dresser
2: They had given us a proposal package. We worked for like 36 hours on it. We brought it back to them. We walked them through it and they left and then called a few hours later and said, we're breaking negotiations. So it's not only baffling, but wholly disappointing. I've never really met people that actually don't understand what negotiations mean. You know, I mean, why are you walking away from the table? To what end do you hope that that will accomplish anything? Mm -hmm. And actually my members are more pumped up than ever. They feel so insulted by this, so degraded by this and dishonored by this, that it's like, Fran, do not cave.
0: I want to get you to comment on that if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Right, yeah. So, it's like, I mean, I know that, like, I think the general sentiment, um, is that there has not been good faith bargaining, um, from the employer side. Union negotiations is a whole other sort of really technical process where both sides present. Uh, you know, draft their issues and meet back and forth in American labor. But most of the times folks settle without strikes and without conflict. In this case, uh, for SAG-AFTRA to initiate a strike and to stay on strike, you know, it's not taken lightly. It's definitely after um, repeated sort of offense from the employer and bad faith bargaining on their part in terms of meeting the union's demands.
0: Why um, are they not uh, engaging more or meeting the um, actors halfway like happened as happened with the writers?
1: Sure, definitely. Yeah. So I think in terms of like the corporation, so Hollywood is unique that the employers um, come together uh, and the, it's called AMPTP. They are the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers. So they actually do it as a block. So the, the, these various producers actually negotiate as a block uh, and they negotiate um, with the various Hollywood unions, such as the writers, the groups, and the actors like one by one. It's also, you know, in terms of like with all kind of negotiations. Once you set the terms, it's there's precedent for the future. Of course, Mm -hmm. contract language can be eroded in the future, but I think in this case, you know, with so much changing, it seems like the employer is also playing hardball and, you know, kind of keeping a hard line in terms of meeting their demands. Um, I think in issues such as, um, you know, and again, AI issues. And I and to be honest, some of the term, more technical things I don't understand, but I just some um some of the folks told me that like in an era of streaming, um, how do you protect your image? And you know, like if somebody played this or you know, like I think before it was more like, you know, you play a movie one time, just the actors get paid out, or and everybody who worked on the set get paid um from this one one uh showing. If you do a rerun or go on video, then you get paid. Through, um, you know, Royalties, yeah. Exactly. Um, But in the era of streaming where you can like watch this over and over again on Netflix, how do you control, you know, your image? How do you, you know, what counts, counts? And I think that's one of those, I think both sides are trying to set the precedent in terms of negotiation for how to proceed forward in this new era.
0: But according to Dresser and others, the, uh, I don't know, the studios, don't want to give anything and they keep moving the football, you know, with the writer's situation, they got something. So how do you how do you see it playing out? What do you think is gonna happen?
1: I see the writers, I see the I see the actors staying out and staying strong. Um I want to say I have confidence and they'll kind of win out favorably in the end with some settlement and concessions. And again, every union is different. Unions are governed by their leadership that's demographically, I mean, democratically elected. So um, to be honest, I don't know what their terms of settlement will be. I feel like they have some bottom line issues that they've been pretty public about. I see them settling those issues favorably if the actors can stay strong and stay out, and that the other unions continue to work in solidarity with them. So I think that's yeah. the other thing. Go yeah, ahead. and
0: you started, or if you may not know this oh, specific thing, but I know that you know, uh, you can speak to generally. Sometimes when there are strikes, the union has money for the union members to sort of replace their salary or part of it. I don't know exactly what that's called, but it's basically so they can eat, so they can the strike, strike bond, bond. Yeah. a strike fund. OK, do do we know? I mean, I assume are these people getting paid by the unions, the members? Do you do um, we know?
1: I, I assume there's probably a pretty modest strike fund to kind of help folks pay the bare necessities like groceries. In the past, when I uh, when I worked as a union organizer and my workers went on strike, they um, also received a meager strike fund. So, um, again, in general, most unions would have a strike fund that's collected from dues, in general, so a rainy day fund for emergencies. But in no way do strike funds match up to what folks' salaries should be. So, again, it's a pretty tough existence. Um, and earlier I mentioned that it's a high risk strategy for for workers to go on strike, and basically, folks don't go on strike unless they think they can win. I think there's been some like leaks that the employers want to starve out the actors and writers and they want folks to lose their mortgages um so they're betting on that folks are gonna the realities of you know the economic reality is gonna catch up to people and, and you,
0: you this- tell your students the corporations aren't evil but that sounds <laughs>
1: <ridiculous>. <laughs> but some some of their managers could be um <laughs> <laughs> well that's a
0: strong word but again it's the bottom line without right, it's the
1: bottom line And of course, on the other side, right, workers, what they have is um, when folks go on strike, they are counting on a numbers game, right? You have the majority of workers striking together, holding the line together, and that they have sympathies from allies and other unions. I know that during the writer's strike, that just concluded um, many actors. um, And also, actually, um, I'm I'm much more familiar with, the grips, which are the sound technicians and folks who do the behind the scenes work, um, many mm-hmm. of them honor the picket line by not showing up. So even though their union and their workers are not on strike, many of them will honor the picket line by just, you know, sort of like working around or not. Um, and some of the truck drivers are not delivering to the sets.
0: Solidarity. Solidarity in that-
1: exactly. So unions count on, um, the unity of their own membership, right? Um, I also tell my student, if one person goes on strike, it doesn't work because other people work is work can continue as usual. But if majority of the workers go on strike and other unions and other entities who sympathize with them are also flexing together, they can create a lot of disper- disturbances for uh, for the corporation. And, and so it becomes, you know, increasingly um, sort of th- there'll be pressures for management to get back to the table. And at some point, and this is also in general, um, some third party, whether a governmental entity, city hall or um, the president of the United States, somebody will step in and say, please get back together. We need you to all come back to work. And usually that's kind of like how it plays out um, that at some point this creates so much um, sort of downstream effects for both the employer, but also the regional economy that a, a power broker will then step in to say, please get back to the table. Let's, let's I know let's that,
0: mayor, that your mayor, Mayor Karen Bass, has mm-hmm at times seem exasperated. She has, I mean, her city, this is the livelihood, right? Right. And and, and, and so I know that she's been involved. It, it, you know, it seems to me when you were speaking, it made me think that part of what has helped the, the strikers is that some of these high-profile cultural elites have, have been supportive, high-profile actors that didn't have to went out there and supported them. And they seem to have a really... Uh, dynamic, indefatigable, you know, popular leader in Fran Drescher, and she's really going to the map for them. Do you see that the same way?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Definitely. I think like, you know, in this case, right, um, some of the workers who are um, high status and high influence are standing in line or sort of standing in solidarity with the lower paid and the sort of like the, the gig worker the, the, the up-and-coming writer and actor. And I think that creates like an incredible sense of solidarity. Again, it's not, you know, this is not where individuals who enrich themselves just kind of are quiet. This is where somebody who perhaps have benefited from the existing system is willing to take a pay cut and to, to be out of work in order to make sure that, against the least paid or the newest hire also have a chance to succeed. Um, yeah, so at think-
0: these, these award ceremonies like the Oscars, you know, you start to see some of these when they give their speeches, some of these actors recognizing the people, as you mentioned, like the grips. I don't don't see, we need grips awards, but.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think. I think it's interesting too, right? I, I I feel like also learning about this and talking to the workers, I realized like how important. I mean, I think I think the the, the Hollywood unions are interesting because, like you mentioned too, this is like the entire regional economy. When the writers go on strike, have, have been on strike, there's no shows, so the actors are actually essentially out of work because there's you know there's no new scripts, um, and the actors are not there. The hairdressers are not working, the grips are not working, the truck drivers stop driving to shows because the shows are stopped. The caterers, so this is again has also like downstream effects of crippling the entire regional economy you know i th- I think the union's job has been successful in terms of right like you can see someone become really resentful because they're out of work because you went off track. yeah i
0: mean or- yeah my heart goes out to somebody who owns a food truck or right. as you mentioned the whole economy is going to hurt is-
1: so i think in this case right it also speaks about the incredible sort of pr work and solidarity building that folks maybe like prepped months and maybe years ahead of this strike right i feel like our public attention is on the strike moment but we can imagine the conversation leading up to this to say we might go out i'm you know i'm sorry um you know we're going to be in this together right and that the public sympathy is not that hey i'm a caterer out of work screw you actors um but rather that you're out i'm out we're doing this together hopefully you get back to work soon so we can all be back at work
0: Do you see this trend continuing, getting better for labor in the next few years?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. So I am actually hopeful. Um, I think earlier you mentioned that union density and membership had gone down for years, but public approval union is finally increasing for the first time in a very long time. I, I see this trend um picking up that perhaps we are fed up, like you said too, like kind of like the moments right before, right after the Great Depression, where folks saw you know the greed of um right uh, of millionaires and billionaires and how everybody else working in sort of you know really challenging conditions making ends meet, and it was in the context of like you know working folks having it really hard that folks came together, the New Deal, the union organizing, and I feel like maybe we're at this moment uh, where like like we talked about earlier too, during COVID, folks, you know, were realizing the importance of essential workers. Essential workers were getting sick or dying at the workplace. People have to put up with like unreasonable customers or a different kind of policies. And there was a great quitting, right? And the great resignation where folks started to wonder, you know what, is it worth it to work this? bad job that hurts my body or makes me sick? Or should I go back to school? Should I upskill my, you know, my my resume? Maybe there are better things I should be doing. Maybe I should play with my kids. So I think in that, um, in light of that, right, there was that conversation about the great labor shortage and workers realizing that, hey, by, you know, we we actually have power. You know, I'm kind of broadly speaking, all of us are working folks that um, I think there's a reckoning on, like, what kind of work is worth your time? We don't wish to work to live, not live to work. Um, right. And Help everybody can demand um living wage and good wage and you know some sort of like standards of living at their workplace so hence um i see this as a moment where folks are really uh, you know relearning about what unions are and how they can be a vehicle for having a voice at the workplace in a very organized manner and some of the issues
0: yeah one thing i'm cautiously optimistic about our young people and i can't keep up with all the gen z and but basically people who are in their 20s right now and and teenagers you know my community college students perhaps your community college students they seem very pro labor and i think it's because they're working at night their boss won't accommodate them to come and take a test they have wage stuff they're getting they're not getting a fair wage a living wage they feel like they're getting screwed and no benefits and, you know, they they recognize that, you know, like some of them work at Starbucks and they they see that Starbucks really cracked down. And so they're pro-labor. But what I'm what, I, I'm, you know, when I say cautiously optimistic, it's how that gets translated politically. Some of them aren't registered to vote. And then when they do, they're not really aware of which candidates are pro-union or so. I think that that's going to take time, but I are, do you share my optimism about young people when it comes to this issue?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I have many of my students are in um, in the same boat as yours too, right? So I tell them you have to show up for midterm, and they're like, we can't get time off. Um, sort of, and I'm glad that they like they demand more. they right; they they're in school because they want to better their lives, but they're kind of in this limbo position where they have to work to pay their tuition but they also want to finish up. Um, So I think in terms of like improving their work conditions is, you know, sort of second nature and like it just goes without thinking. So I'm cautiously optimistic. And one thing I try to do in my own teaching is to channel them to form a union, if they can, to join a union, but also being really strategic. And I think part of the ongoing challenge is that in my, on one hand unions are, more properly than before, but the work is not done just by joining a union. The hard work, um, as we talked about earlier too, is like, you know, once you have your unionized, you had to go um, settle your first contract and you have ongoing negotiations and it's back and forth takeaways and giveaways it what we see as these strikes um, took years to build right to um to think about again getting folks on the same page about taking you know taking sacrifices to go out of work to plan for like go you know not work for two months so you can get a better contract down the line and how many of us have the capability to say that like tomorrow we're able to do that right so i think Um, in sort of educating our students to see their involvement in the labor movement and also in unions as a long game, how to participate democratically, how to um, be really wise in their decision making, how to not jump on um, the biggest wage increase that, you know, and some actually some union um, contract settlements, we see employers would dangle a big wage settlement ahead of time while cutting away benefits, right? And this is... You know, and,
0: and I was very disheartened by how Starbucks really just cracked down on a lot of these, you know, these are baristas working, you know, like some of our students, you know, and as I I don't know all the details, but I know that Starbucks, even when they gave them what they were asking for, they punished those in the unions. They really don't want union. even Apple that treats people reasonable, you know, relatively better than they just didn't want a union. They, they right. want to control, you know, how it plays out. And I tell my students that, that, you know, there's a lot of focus on national politics, but state legislatures are really where a lot of this is happening. These right to work laws, these structural things. So I'm hope, hopeful that, you know, it's, it's difficult, but how do you see social media playing a role in this, especially in the context of young people?
1: As a as a Gen Xer, elder millennial, that's where I, I categorize myself. Um, I sort of have some use of social media, but at the same time, I, I, I don't use it like young people do. I think the general sentiment is that we demand more, we we need more. But I also think the flip, flip side of social media is also a relative short attention span to mm-hmm. issues, right? Just kind of like this is popular now, maybe the next thing is coming tomorrow. I um I think. I'm hoping that social media can be also, you know, I think more unions are using it widely, uh, wisely, as well as um, you know, various uh, political campaigns in terms of engaging folks for the long run. A lot of this work organizing is for the long run. Like, you form a union, your employer retaliates against you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You come back and keep going, or do you just say like, my attention span is done and I give up? Let's try the next thing. I worry that part of you know, like if this um, sort of the increased interest in union activity can be translated to um, to doing this work and to do the hard work. Uh, like earlier, we mentioned that sort of like the unglamorous work that Dolores Huerta did, right? Making your list, making sure your allies are around, getting your ducks in a row, talk to people, um, and so that you can weather campaigns that last five, 10 years.
0: And she wasn't busy tweeting. There is a, there is a term called slacktivism, which is actually in the textbook I use now, And, you know, it's just this idea that young people get on social media and, oh, I tweeted about the environment and I can go back and watch Netflix and chill that that this is an illusion of activity. And, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed. And I I just wonder about the algorithms and how the corporations or the anti-union people are going to use social media. So I guess... You know. Sure,
1: definitely. Yeah, I feel like there's going to be a lot of back and forth. And I see that, you know, I think it's just like an updated version of the PR wars of the newspaper articles, right? Like New York Times writes this Wall Street Journal writes back, except that these things are uh, the tweetings and the and, the, and the, the, the TikTok posts are coming back and forth m- at a much faster rate. But I also do wonder, I think, um, in terms of back to um, labor organizing and union organizing, it's it's the little guy it's it's uh you know folks have less at their disposal right we're talking about how again corporations in their interest to maximize profits also have control of um right finance they have control over the terms of settlement they have a lot more at their disposal whereas the organizing work does take a lot more people volunteering time you know headspace and doing the work and i would say um and I think, like you said, right, it's it would take more than just social media tweeting and it would take more than just clicking on a like. You know, can folks sustain the work of meeting after work and after school, getting folks together, volunteering, coordinating and also, you know, willing to understanding that there's going to be setbacks and sacrifices. and, um, and that and, the work of course,
0: take- and of course, I know this is not your area, but I'm fascinated by the politics of it for a long time now the union was a dirty word. You know, mostly the Republican Party would paint a Democrat, for example, as pro-union. It was not good. But now it seems to be that that since that's changing, it'll be interesting to me to see in these next elections if, you know, the Democrats embrace unions. It's interesting, you know, President Biden is the first president to say, I am a pro-union president. And I don't think that would have happened 20 years ago. So, Right, definitely. Yes, I think
1: that's a trend i feel like and i feel like i think like right before like i think there was that, that time that era right after before and after world war ii where unions were not dirty words right like so both sides of the political spectrum courted union support and i wonder if we're going to return back to that um, <laughs> <laughs> um well, I... that unions are simply a, a reality right um again back to sort of like even though nowadays it's you know associated with progressives and democrats but that they are a tool you know workers if you want to have a way to advocate for your work conditions as permitted by law you need to actually be in a certified union otherwise you know your employer could be the nicest guy in the world but they are not obligated by law to meet you to bargain with you um, at all you know so unions as a vehicle to advance worker interest and i feel like that is something that most americans should be able to agree on that you know I can either sit here and take whatever it's given to me, or I can try to be at the table and demand for what I want with my coworkers. I, I, I am hopeful that, you know, as we, um, you know, well, that's after-
0: good. I always I always like to wrap up on a positive note. So, so that's good.
1: Isn't that the most American thing to do? To like advance, to advocate for yourself, to do what's right, and to actually be active about it, as opposed to just sit around, you know, to 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 wish that something good happens to you. So I tell my work, my 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 uh, my own students, I'm like, you might be on, you know, sort of like whichever side of the political spectrum you are in. I think we can all agree on that. We should take an active interest in our own. Of well-being, right? And our work uh, is not just how much we get paid. It's about, can our kids go to the dentist? Uh, can they go to good schools? Can I take time off and go on vacation, right? This is it has so much downstream effects. And um, it's the most American thing to do, to like to say, I take an active interest and I'll be active in advancing my own interests.
0: Yeah, and even Henry Ford, who was not pro-labor at all, he knew that there needed to be a middle class to buy his cars. And so there was a <laughs> pragmatism to it. I'm hopeful that I'm not I don't know about both parties yet, but I'm very hopeful that young people will translate this into political activity and that things will get better. Do you have anything else to add, Dr. Chen, that we didn't cover anything that's happening in California or just.
1: Um, yeah, sure. I guess like a note on um, California. too, and I, I think sort of like I think about like the 20 years, 30 years ago. Um, but, I, you know, I actually um, became a union organizer straight out of college um, after. Um, This was 2002, right after I graduated from Harvard. One of my professors was actually an organizer with the United Farm Workers. So he was teaching political science at Harvard. Um, Wow. Marshall Gantz. So he's a strategist. He was one of the strategists for farm workers. So he made a huge impact on me in terms of thinking about, you know, work and living well and dignity. But I came back to California to organize hospital workers. And it was during a wave of the the labor revitalization where, um, you know, you know, So earlier I mentioned that um, California was generalized, perceived as an anti-union place. Many unions didn't want to organize in California. They perceived California as having so many immigrant workers who are perhaps used to you know, more um, low wage and precarious work conditions. The Mexican and Filipino farm workers are used to bad conditions. They would never take a risk to unionize. No, there is a way to, to engage the low wage worker, to engage the immigrant worker, to engage all kinds of workers. Workers on both their civil rights issues and social justice issues and their working conditions. I was part of that wave of, um, I, I actually worked for CIU, the Service Employee International Union. And there's some other unions like the Hotel Workers Union, many unions that saw the importance of organizing in the community, of, of organizing with marginalized communities, right? And again, not to see uh, immigrant workers or their immigration status as a barrier to to activism, but rather embrace it to say, let's talk about, you know, all these conditions that and your immigrant rights and civil rights and workers' rights. Let's do it all at the workplace.
0: Yeah, and we saw that in Nevada, where the SEIU is very organized, and they helped a Democratic candidate uh, over, and they may have helped Biden get over the threshold needed because of that organizing. It's interesting about California, because I was surprised that it was anti-union at one point, because now it's at the top of all the lists in terms of wage policies, worker protection policies, and right to organize. And some of this is blue-red, where like Mississippi and Alabama are at the bottom, but um you know, you've been in the trenches. So I think the fact that you're optimistic is a good sign to me, at least for labor. So anything else?
1: Right, and I want to say that the California model, right, of like, let's organize everybody and have these long view, long range view, like you said, too, right? So aside from organizing all kinds of workers, increasing our union density, and then also flexing our political leverage to perhaps change state laws, right? To, to, to elect candidates that change laws to our favor, um, is to kind of like the comprehensive package, right? Nowadays, again, we're looking at politics being, you know, like gone on the days of the factory where you negotiate with your boss, right? But that we're looking at international corporations. We're looking at local laws. We're looking at like entire sets of laws change, such as right to work laws that are unfavorable to unions. So then on the flip side, how do, um, you know, the California models and these l- models of like, again, organizing entire communities, organizing more and getting actually back into politics to change. Change the conditions to be favorable for union organizing or working or, or bargaining. I think is starting to catch attention to the rest of the U.S. right, That more unions are now organizing beyond just crafts or saying like we only we, we're only going to look at this model, but or but rather again talking about organizing. How do we engage the low wage worker? Engage engage the workers who you know maybe never thought about joining a union uh, to build solidarity and actually. Actually, eventually increase density, political power, and ultimately change the rules of the game to become favorable for the working person again.
0: And I see these young union organizers and organizers such as yourself, um, they seem more flexible and willing to, okay, this has changed. So we have to have a different way of operating and sort of always be ready to change with the times and different tactics. Tactics for different times, right? So that's
1: definitely there were some um, stubborn union leaders who didn't change. Um, mm-hmm. They, you know, we we knew about the stories of graft, of corruption, and um, nepotism, where folks, you know, maybe got some gains and then just stuck with the same old ways and didn't realize that the entire political landscape shifted under them. So with that cautionary tale in mind, how do the modern union unions and and you know sort of different political Operative see diversity's assets um, are flexible in, you know, reading the changing rules and take opportunities um, as, again, context shift and new things come in place. And, and of course, like being on the front line in terms of making sure it becomes favorable for you. And again, I'm thinking about like AI, new technologies. Um, these are new things that, again, I think unions should definitely jump on and and make sure that bargaining rules are favorable to them before, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the line, we all are replaced by robots and nobody has jobs.
0: (laughs) This is not your, this is not your grandfather's union. There are more, as you said, immigrants, women.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's not just blue collar workers, but increasingly we see a lot of activists from nurses, from um, physicians, uh, lots of teacher organizing And so, you know, uh, yeah, and that's sort of like high status, low status, high tech workers all over the place. So the modern union, uh, but I think comes back to also like the same old truth, right? Of like, how do we preserve dignity in our work? How do we live well? How do we ensure that work pays and takes care of us and not the other way around?
0: Well, I think your students are lucky because I can tell spending this hour with you, you're very... Not only do you know a lot about this, but you're very enthusiastic and you seem passionate about it. And if you like what you teach, then you're a better teacher. So,
1: Great, thank you. I am hoping.
0: <laughs> well, um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Chen. I really, really appreciate you being on the show today.
1: No problem. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk to chat with you.
0: We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.